Hello, this is our Fintorn Barrow, episode number 14, and me and my co-host Alex are here with my good friend Indira Doon, and today we're going to talk to Indira about her soul singing event, and for that was for fundraising for Cali on Friday, that happened just there in Universal Hall, and about the different issues that interlink with it. Hi Indira, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Callum. Thanks, Alex. Indira, where did you get the inspiration for Friday's event from? Hmm, so I've been... Um, the inspiration... I actually got it from you, Callum. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you, yeah, you you came up with the idea did initially. You, you initiated this whole thing. <laughs> um I remember, I guess it would have been a couple of years back when you were living here. And um, so I've been soul singing and also every every penny that's raised from our soul singing um, together, which is a community thing that we do now. Um, every penny goes towards uh, the a fund, a refugee fund for people in Calais, uh, in northern France. So it is an area, a place that I've been going to for several years, more intensively, um, around from t- summer 2017 through to early 2019, and then there was breaks. It's kind of really an expansion on that, what we have already been doing, which is devotional singing, raising money, drop by drop by drop. This is a an issue um, that isn't going away. Uh, it it continues and it gets worse. Mm. So that is kind of the intention for me behind doing what I do. It's a tiny little thing, but it it's a little thing. So um, and I feel it's important and. People have been asking me a lot about um, Calais, what goes on there. And I find it very difficult to talk about when Mm. somebody asks me um, on the runway, um, maybe with a preconceived idea about how things are, Mm. and then wanting me to on the spot fill in the gaps. And um, so I've kind of... Uh, I've sort of extricated myself from those sort of situations. But in other situations where there's a really deep, meaningful, you know, interchange, a real curiosity and a listening, then it's it's something I, I, I really love to do because it just is so close to my heart. There's been like requests for a Sunday slot, you know, that I show slides and that I talk about it and da 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 da. And I've never felt, never felt ready. And it's been partly my own process also of coming to terms with being in Calais, why I go, how, and um, not even knowing at the beginning that I was in a process, but I was and I have been. And um, being able to find uh, find a kind of stillness and a comfort and a, and a and a peace, I guess, in in the pain of that. First of all, 
uh, really, uh, it, it, um, it's not so much a coming to terms with, it's more a finding a way to be with it. And until, I guess I felt that until I'm at that point, I can't really talk about it. And so this was an opportunity to have a uh, this soul singing fundraiser was to share some of my experiences there, not with a question and answer situation, which I'm getting closer to, mm. um, but just just to share some experiences, you know, from the photos, the snapshots basically that I took without any intention of ever showing them necessarily, just to offer that as a as a little way in. Why was it that you first went to Cali and what is it that keeps you going back there and mm. keeps you connected to that place? So I've always worked in the area of social justice, racial justice, with refugee people also in a voluntary capacity. I remember standing in my kitchen actually just there one day and it was like and, and I know one can tell stories about these things this moment da 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 and bang something happens well it, you know uh, it was something like that it was actually me just standing there and, and just feeling such an overwhelming sense of I am oh fuck I'm allowed to swear yeah 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 we can swear <laughs> we decided that at the beginning of the podcast yeah. Yeah. we're gonna swear and we said yes but there hasn't been a lot of swearing on the podcast yeah. i was just sort of like oh 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 you know i'm going to calais i'm going to calais and um and then things just flowed on from there and it just it just i went gathered lots of donations filled the car drove down and then that was my first experience of being there Summer 2017. 2017. August 2017. Mm. So the photos that I showed the other night as well, that it was basically um, the beginning, the first, my first experience, the first year, year and a half of being, of being there and going there regularly and um, not knowing, I mean, not having any idea about anything actually, about what anything would be like and, People do come for a weekend and they stay for a week and then they stay for a month and then they stay for a year. <clears throat> because it's that kind of, it is that kind of place that draws you in. It's a, it's a way of life. It's a way of life for, for um, volunteers specifically that are going there. You said that um, before in your life, so before you were ever involved in Cali, that you did volunteering around social justice for migrant people, refugee people, and also racial justice. Where did that come from in your life? What got you into that? Um, I, I, I'm from a mixed race background, um, which has shaped me more than I can say <laughs> and I'm still discovering the new ways in which it's shaped me um, and that is a, a German mother and Indian father um, both of whom were um, 
who in their own childhood were refugees uh, during partition and the Second World War, my mother. So moving across lands to safety, basically, and surviving. So I think that's, that's an origin of my, my, it, it's more than a concern and interest. It actually feels like it's part of my, my whole, um, beingness is actually about, uh, maybe, I don't know, who knows, but, um, and I'm careful when I use the word healing because I don't know if it is about healing, but it, it, but it's certainly about some kind of transmutation, something to do with uh, why am I here? What am I doing? What, in a way, do I have no choice but to do in order to be able to feel that I can live and that I can belong and that I don't pass this on to the next, to, to my child and, you know, to the children, to the next generations, you know, it feels really, it feels, I don't actually have the language for it. Mm. So, um, but it doesn't feel like a, like a head thing. Oh, I must go and do this. Or I must yeah. go and do that. It's more like, oh, I find myself um, living in Berlin and, trying to understand who my mother was, but I didn't know that's why I went. You know, it's only mm. afterwards that I kind of realized, ah, oh, that's why I'm here. And experiencing living in Berlin also as a person of color then in the early 90s, the kind of, um, well, racism that I witnessed and that, you know, and then traveling to in India and being drawn back to that land again and again and again over, you know, since, since I was very young and uh, traveling on my own always um, to, to understand who, 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 who I am. It is, feels it's very intrinsically connected with land and maybe that is something that of the diaspora in a way that there is a, there's a, there's a, a, a need to return, to keep returning, to find, to experience home in some way. There was a point where I felt, and it was also a time where um, my son was born as well, where there was a, a massive change and I needed something to help me understand cognitively what was going on. But this was after Berlin actually with my, with my son. He was a tiny baby at the time, back to London. And I studied, I studied um, social anthropology and development studies and education and gender. So these were master's degrees. And then I did a PhD in um, the, in the sociology of education with a specific focus on mixed race, women and girls, identity and further education. And at the same time, I was also um, volunteering in, um, at the Refugee Council in London. And my one of my master's dissertation was done in Berlin on unaccompanied minors, uh, unaccompanied minor refugee children who'd arrived there. 
what kind of standout experiences pop up in your mind when you think of Cali? What kind of people? What kind of standard? Standout. Standout. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, what drew me back there again and again was the experience of openness, willingness, friendship, love. Nobody's left out. Nobody's left behind. Everybody's included. Everybody, nothing is too much for anybody kind of thing. Time gets taken. And in that very tense environment also, where decisions have to be made really fast Mm. um, and actions have to be enacted very quickly. And still, there's always take care, take care, take care of each other, take care of each other, look after each other. Nobody gets left behind. And I think that's what draws the volunteers back again and again. Um, I think the connections with people is also what, what drew them back. So, yeah, it did. It felt like a homecoming when I when I went. So I was mainly uh, uh, with the children, doing activities and music with the children. I I don't know how sustainable to always be. Something going one way is, and mm. I don't really believe in that. There was a great swathe of them left at a certain time, but they all. Many of them all settled, many of them settled, went to live in Manchester and they would live in the same houses and some went to live in Glasgow and they would live in the same houses and in Bristol Um, because that was kind of the natural next step and that Mm -hmm. support, that mutual support was so so needed. It was just so Mm -hmm. intrinsic to to what they had experienced and it was almost like taking that experience and then landing on the moon, kind of coming back. Yeah, you know? to, was that sense of like community togetherness, mm-hmm. looking out for each shared other that they've seen there in Cali, yeah. and the shared experiences shared experience as well. Yes, those experiences went very deep, and these are without wanting to be patronising, but they are young people, you know, who, in many ways. You know, such a such a huge learning, learning. Um, but then that thing of leaving Calais is also, I think, for many, it was quite final. Then you know, it's once you go back, you're caught again, and it's it's been on the mental health level, it's been hard for a lot of people to leave Calais. Mm, there must volunteers. be emotional goodbyes. Yeah. And the whole thing of experiencing what goes on there and have, being in this position of having to make such difficult decisions all the time, yeah. With your background, do you feel a resonance? Or or is it more, because you, you were saying about having going back to Berlin, going back to India mm. to discover who you are, but is there something about not feeling like you belong somewhere that's something that allows you, in a way, to feel more resonant with the people in Calais? Because of the shared experience that I have with them. Uh, On some level, I think that's true. On some level. On some level, there is a shared experience. But the shared experience is also the shared experience of um, feeling sorrow and feeling joy and 
having all those human experiences that we all have. So the experience for me of being a volunteer there is not experiencing myself as being apart from them, but rather finding a, a finding that commonality, that common thread, finding a way to in, integrate into that experience um, uh, without adapting, without changing, but just, you know, that this is also part of me and this is also part of everyone, actually. You know, there's one, one, one image that keeps flashing in front of me. And many images actually keep flashing, but maybe I can name one or two. The people, we're in the jungle, in a jungle, not the Cali jungle that was destroyed in 2016, but afterwards all the small jungles that spring up everywhere because people need to be somewhere. And then the refugee community kitchen is providing food and people are queuing and they're hungry and they're, you know, and there's the, and there's this, and then you just start talking with them. They're hungry, they're tired, they're exhausted. They're, they've just been trying to get across the night before. They've been traveling, they've been on lorries, they've been thwarted, whatever it might be. Uh, um, had a run in with the police, but they're standing there and you meet their eye, you meet them eye to eye and you talk with them and, or you just meet them eye to eye and there's just such light in their eyes, you know, there's just such light, such a moment of clarity and recognition that can just pass between you in that moment. And and then, and then you laugh or you sing or, you know, you do something like that. And um, that's maybe what I'm trying to say. You know, the experiences are incredibly different. I'm in a, and the volunteers are on very different situations and privileged situations in that they have passports and they have money and can get on a ferry and leave anytime they mm. want. Um, and, uh, so it's quite, yeah, it's complex and very simple on one level as well. The camps being there in that form and those people being there in that context will be largely symptomatic of like the French nation states approach and then the UK nation states approach and their systems that are in place and which are constantly changing. What do you think about these systems in that context? Should Cali and the camps be there in that form? What's the the failings maybe of these systems? can't even begin to talk about that actually it's just I I don't um, subscribe to to any of it it's in it's um, in my uh, view 
um, it is in inhumane. And then we could talk politics, we can talk borders, we can talk about all that, but I don't and I won't because um, I can't, <clears throat> uh, well, I think I've said it, I don't subscribe to any of it. And neither do I, and I hope that one day the world gets past the way that they're doing this just now and recognise everyone's shared humanity. So when I when I when I went recently, um, uh, the people are now getting on boats. They're not getting in lorries. The reason why they're not getting in lorries now is partly because it's almost impossible to to get on one. When you come through Calais, the fences are high and they run for about three, four kilometers. This is my observation. I'm sure one can find out exactly how long those fences are, but it's, it's just a fortress that goes on for miles. And um, so they now are going crossing boats, which is more dangerous, as dangerous, I don't know. Uh, it was an experience of being on that ferry, leaving. I've got a passport. I can, I can go, and I did. And so I left and then I'm on the ferry and it's full of people who've just coming back from their holidays. This was in August. And, you know, everybody's laughing and joyful and, you know, sharing their food. And somebody offered me also, you know, a family to share some nuts with them. And, you know, and it's just kind of like, and I'm just experiencing that. And it's just worlds apart, just worlds mm. apart and trying to find a way to, integrate that in me in that moment and I'm I'm one of them I'm leaving I'm you know I could have been on holiday um and and trying to f it's it's bizarre just looking out over the coastline that we're leaving and I know people small children are going to be getting on dangerous inflatable dinghies that night and they're going to be on this massive massive sea right the channel when you're look down and it's just this massive water uh, it's i i can't get my head around it purely just because they were born in a different place in a different situation would you say that your experience as a kelly have, have have highlighted the feeling of privilege that you have i become aware of my privilege more and more yeah yeah, every day in some ways. Um, how the world is so separated, so unequal, so unjust, so fucked. Mm. You know? It, uh, and we live in these bubbles, you know, that there's a certain image presented by the news. Once you get into the UK, you're kind of in a, a bubble with the media, the borders... You know what I mean? Even the language, because we only read mm -hmm. things in English, so we read articles that are written in English, books that are written in English. It creates this this kind of, this bubble. Are we part of that also, though? You know, is there a, a bubble also kind of suggests a border in a way that, you know, we have to cross this 
the Findhorn border mm. and then having to step out of our own, mm. you know, maybe conditioned mindsets and there's a certain way of doing things here also, mm. you know. I always feel very different when I leave Findhorn when I go to London. I have mm. a completely different experience. Yeah, the kind of language that people use, the Everything, customs yeah. people have, things people yeah. do. In relation to Fintern, what's been your experience of connecting Fintern as a community to Cali and to soul singing? I, I've i been, uh, when I was traveling there by car and collecting donations and I put call outs and things, I was overwhelmed by people's generosity. Um, and yeah, uh, yeah, and even like you know, when I'm saying people asking me in the runway and questions, but I'm saying I can't, I can't go there right now. Even that is, it's an interest and it's a curiosity, and I wanted to be able to, to really follow, f- follow through. Um, the NFA offered money to help me to go to take there, as well, hundreds of pounds to buy things for the people. Um, and then I started doing the soul singing, so we were doing our own collections for that. Nobody's ever said, I don't want to do that. Why are we doing that? And what's been the experience of soul singing in particular in Fintern for you? I would say it was my experience in Calais that began soul singing here. I was singing with the children initially um, in the, the jungle of Pituk and Galsant. Excuse my accent. Um, so knowing what my my own personal experience is playing the harmonium and singing with the harmonium, it allows me to feel myself, to be myself, to express myself. I have a voice when I'm when I'm playing the harmonium. That's what it feels like to me. It's like a, it, it's like it feels like an uh, in a way like an extension of me so I'm really every time anytime I feel sad or um confused or ah, like that you know um I know I just need to sit down and sing and things will feel better and then so with that kind of awareness I was and and maybe not even, but on some level, yes, singing with the children in Calais and seeing the effect that it had on them. And the children wanted to, want to learn to play, so they're learning the really, so we're singing mantras, um, very simple mantras. And then they're learning to play the mantras as well. And they're keen. They want to learn to play the mantras. And when they see me coming towards them, they start singing the mantra, you know. They don't care about my name. It's just like, you know, Ganesha Sharanam, Sharanam, and so there's that, there's that, you know, that it gives the the little um, the little moment of joy and learning and doing something together and sound and they call it a machine and you know, and then there are also moments where. The instrument and me singing to them was, it felt an incredibly, give me another word instead of healing, because healing sounds a bit, sounds a bit 
restoring or therapeutic? A therapeutic, maybe, yeah, that it's restorative in some way. But again, this thing of like that the kids are might be just sitting around the harmonium and they're quiet and then they've just been getting on a they've just been travelling all night, been meeting their smuggler with their family and then getting on lorry and then uh, and it's failed and they've come back so they've been up all night they're exhausted um they're sad they're confused and they just need to be still for a minute for a moment and not be in this throng of the noise of wherever it is that they are because you know there's always like so much going on and they'll just be very quiet and and I'll sing to them like um, little uh, Sufi mantras that are like lullabies, you know. And they'll listen. And they'll close their eyes and they'll be still. They'll just be still for for a moment. And yeah. So with that experience, then uh, I started singing here in the community with people, yeah. just inviting people to come and sing if they wanted to. I think the first one I went to was in the winter months and I went to quite a few around that time and just being there in the sunshine room with all of the candles laid out beautifully and all of the coloured lights you put across the piano, all of the cushions and flowers Mm. and then around 20 or so people there in the circle different instruments, maracas, shakers, tambourines, guitars, different instruments, lying about, bells, you with your harmonium, everyone there just singing and like there is the mantra songs and then it is like we're all making that music together. Like I'm, I'm someone that really loves music but I'm not great at any instruments and I never like make or produce music with anyone really but to be there to have that experience together um, there are moments when it's like it's quite easy to get into the flow of each other doing that because we're all there for the same reason and singing the same things at the same time and I find there's this experience that we can all feel quite separate, but then when doing something like that, then suddenly mm. it is like almost one mind between the whole group and there's something about that that is very like liberating, that is very freeing, that is very therapeutic. So I think even here in Fintorn, it helps people a lot, those soul singing events. Yeah, that's nice to hear that from from you to hear that, you know, description, to hear it described. It makes me think also how it's like a very personal experience mm. and at the same time it's a communal experience. Um, because sometimes, you know, in the group I'm sort of thinking, you know, I'm having my own experience here and I get the sense that everyone's having their own experience here. And nobody's walked out yet, so can't be that bad. But it does actually feel like it just creates an incredible energy field, which is one. And each time it can be so different as well, like maybe more in the winter months where it is very like calm and mm-hmm. relaxing, wholesome. Then I remember one that we did 
this summer here mm-hmm. in this room <laughs> and everyone was so hyperactive and just really going for it with the instruments but that was really good in its own way as well <laughs> yeah uh, yeah it's true a lot of the mantras more recently as well have been in settings and it's not feeling like you know I'm composing a mantra or I'm writing a mantra it's just I start to sing but it's so connected with the, the, the context that I'm in so you know in the Middle East and different places uh, or often, usually involving water the setting that you've just talked about here as well it's almost like there's a certain energy that's being brought or that exists and it just finds an expression in that moment and you don't really know why Mm. or how even Um, or it can be incredibly still Um, I find it fascinating I literally never know what's going to happen and I seldom have a plan for, for the people listening, when and where are your soul singing events? In tend to be in the Sunshine Room or in my home in Mantra Lounge, which is in East Winds. We have usually been doing them on Fridays, but it could be any day. What's your connection to the harmonium? That's it there. It's the same one. I didn't know I was going to buy it was like I was on my way from London to Findhorn I was going to the I was on my way to the airport and I found myself just doing a detour to quite a big detour to Southall and uh, bought a harmonium didn't even like the sound of it very much at that time whenever I'd heard it it's, it's too dirty don't like it but then when I had it, it was a completely different experience. And what's your relationship with Fintern? How did you first get involved in Fintern? What brought you here? I grew up on this land. Um, I grew up near Fraserburgh. So there is something about the connection with the land. I always thought I would come and live in Scotland. It was about the people. It was about the humour. It was about the 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 language that I grew up with, the language that I took on in order to be able to fit in here um, as well, because if if I hadn't, I would have had a terrible time where I grew up as a brown person. And English people there had a really hard time. And only much later do I then realise, ah, that's why I needed to come back. Yeah, it's the same like this thing going, you know, travelling in Asia and India and Germany. And those were the, that's the land of my ancestors. And I need to somehow feel that touch base with that, understand it, transmute it. God knows what happens there. I don't know. But with the Scotland thing, coming back to Scotland, it felt like this is where I was displaced to. This is the land I was actually, I was put on here, you know. Um, I don't have any roots here at all. I also need to experience and understand and come full circle with that experience to heal, (laughs) Uh, to therapize myself. Um, And that's what happened. That's what happened, very much so. Um, And there's some bits that are missing still. And I think that's why I'm still here 
if I'm going to think about it. There's a part that I really want to be able to heal. And I don't know if I can do it here. Mm. And that's your next question. <laughs> and in turn, what's been your experience um, of this community in terms of issues of migration and race? Um... To be honest, um, I, to be honest, I, 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 I am afraid to talk about that topic. Uh, it doesn't feel particularly safe. Um, there are in there are individual conversations that I have with people all the time, which where I where we're get we're getting it. You know, we're really getting it, but as a community-wide thing to start talking about these issues, um, I have the feeling that it's not something people really want to engage with. Mm -hmm. That grieves me. That grieves me, aggrieves me. Mm, because because it's a, it's a huge and important topic issue and to pretend that it doesn't exist or to maybe believe that we're beyond that here in some way or that it's not an issue um, sets Findhorn apart in a way that I don't think it can be. And as a as a beacon of light for the world and as a place of education and demonstration that everybody's looking to around the world, I think the issue around its identity um, is really, really important to look at. You know, who's living here? Why? Is there anything that we can do to begin to take these big issues out from under the carpet and talk about them in an open and transparent way where everyone feels safe? Do you think the community is, is approaching the point where that conversation could happen or is it still, in your opinion, not really getting close to that? When I hear that question, I feel like I have to step up and that in some way it's my responsibility and other uh, people of colour and black people here that it's somehow their responsibility. And I don't think it is. Um, so I don't know, actually. I really don't know. I think if Fintorn does want to be a beacon of light to the world, then as a community, as a place, it really has to face openly and directly the injustices that a lot of people around the world have to face all the time in their lives. Because there is, you know, the aspects of in turn in which it recognises the ways in which we're all connected, no matter who we are. But 
uh, we can't bypass the ways in which some people have more privilege than others or some people have to go through things that other people don't just because of where they're born or who they are. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And it's just and just even the first step of becoming aware of uh, the uh, aware of of how it's positioned in relation to others and the world. Where does privilege lie? Where does equality lie? Where does injustice? Where do injustices lie? Uh, what do we do about them? Has a lot to do with our conditioning. I'm dealing with it. I'm trying to deal with my own conditioning, you know. I'm trying to un undo my learned thoughts and patterns and behavior through talking with others, through talking with people who have different experiences to me that I may know nothing about. You know, I had a conversation just the other night where, you know, it was one of those conversations. And I, I, I thank God for them and they're so important and I wish there were more of them. And I wish we were talking with each other a lot more about the hidden stuff. Mm. And I wish that we could create a culture of safety around that so that that was even possible and not that people come here feel alone and lost and no one's got their back and they leave you know like that I don't know. Is that an exaggeration? Yeah, well, it's, it's like it's it's not. It's more than yeah. As you say, it's more than race. It's about privilege. It's about wealth. It's about all these things. And the community has created this kind of exclusive club in a way. There's been certain financial barriers and so on to be able to purchase properties or to get into programs and things. There's a club, and we're not talking about that in relation to privilege and what that means about who we are and what we say we are in terms of being a global community. When we're really kind of this little club. Mm. Um, so I, th I think that, that after the, the pandemic, that's kind of broken a few things. I'm hoping that that will start to break way for new conversations about some of the shadow sides of the community. Mm. Which comes back to your question to me about, mm. do I see, am I experiencing mm. that? And as you put it there, I, I would say yes. Mm. Um, in, in my conversations, it's happening. It's mm. happening, and maybe in small pockets it's happening, mm. yes. Yeah, I'd agree. And, you know, to get away from the assumptions. I mean, that's the bottom line, mm. really, the assumptions that we have about this, that, and the next thing. And then the conversations that just kind of help us to strengthen that assumption, to, to break through that barrier, constantly break through that barrier. I and mean, one of the things I hear more commonly is like they're not spiritual enough or their spiritual mm -hmm. tradition isn't isn't fintorn or that sort of thing. And it's, there's a bit of a, you know, well, have you talked to them about what their spiritual tradition mm -hmm. is, their background, wherever they come from and stuff, rather than just making an assumption that they need to fit into whatever fintorn spirituality is. So I think 
um, it gets coaxed in a, in a kind of language that makes it sound like we're helping people, but actually, are we helping people? Or are we actually disregarding their culture? Hmm. I want to say something to that, but there's going to be a pause. Um... So one of the things that I was kind of like, as I said, I don't know how safe I am to say mm. things. and But one of the things that you've just brought up, and now I feel more safe to mm. say it, is that on some level there does seem to be, if we're talking about identity or material things in some way, that that is not spiritual. Mm. And that we are actually, that we, who, whoever we is, you know, that we're beyond and above that because we're concerned with the ascendancy of identity in some way, mm -hmm. you know, we're above all that, you know, we don't, we don't have those issues here because we see everyone as the same, right? So, and on one level, yes, but on another level, it's a complete denial mm -hmm. of, the experiences of people who have different experiences mm. Mm. to whatever the norm, mainstream, assumptive ones might be. So is that what you mean? Yeah. I mean, we say, okay, we're beyond it. But then by saying we're beyond it, there's, there's a kind of hidden, it's like a hidden thing saying, you've got to fit in with us and we're disregarding who you are. Is that what you're saying? That there is a certain way of being, a certain yeah. discourse, a certain a, a certain right way of being mm. that well, make, allows you to fit in. It's and, a very Western way of thinking in, in that the West or, or European colonizing way of thinking, which is that yes, we have uh, created the standard way that the world works. And it's beyond countries, you know, like the, the, the W, whatever, this and that and the other, the WHO and the, the World Bank. And we've created the world. And now you have to, you know, disregard your own cultures and fit into our global, you know, structure that we are now saying is beyond your, beyond your culture. But it's really just a kind of extension of the Western culture mm -hmm. in a way. And I feel like Fintorn, the communities, is, is, um, doing the same sort of thing in a way. It's like we've got our own Western brand of spirituality mm. and we're beyond mm. all of the your spirituality. Mm. And you need to, it's a very similar thing. Mm. Mm. In spiritual circles, I've also seen like a addiction to formlessness. So it's mm. all about the formlessness. What is like beyond or like what is mm. within in terms of that? but it disregards that we find ourselves in a reality of form where like everything is unique, individual and different, including every human being as well. Like that is at least like half of our reality really. And I have seen like some, like online I've seen like a, a white, male, straight, upper middle class guru, for instance. I liked a lot of the things he was saying, but then in one part of his discourse, he just suddenly started going into 
like disregarding other people's experiences mm. so like to him it quote-unquote like didn't matter if a person was like a woman if they were gay if they were like maybe like a black person in america these sorts of things because we should be focusing on like how we're all connected but he's not experienced the things that the those groups of people, those people that he's calling out in that way, have experienced. And I think if he had experienced more of those kind of things, or if it maybe if he'd listened to other people, then he wouldn't be saying such things. I think it's good to like recognize and acknowledge the form and the formlessness in life. Yeah. No, absolutely, exactly that. And it feels like the the ultimate in... uh, It's very easy, you know, just connecting with what you've both said in a way it's very easy to just, you know, the normative... the The normative white, Western, middle class, wealthy, whatever it might be, privilege is so normative uh, that it doesn't realize its own dominance, you know, and it doesn't realize its its impact. And it's not interested in that, actually, because it's the measure by which, uh, it's the standard by which everyone ought to measure themselves. Yeah, just looking at it through the lens, that lens that we've just been talking about, everything just potentially it needs to be undone. It needs mm. to be thoroughly deconstructed and looked at from another lens. And when you look at it from another lens, everything looks totally different. You know, if you look at something through the through a gendered lens, through a race lens, through an uh, a, a ability, disability lens, you know, everything looks utterly different. I was interested that you said it's so normative that it's become dominant because it's actually the other way around. It's become so, it, it, it's so dominant that mm-hmm. it has become yes. normative. Yeah. Yeah. But it's like that's 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 the way we think. Oh, that's normative because it's so dominative. Mm-hmm. But it's actually the other way around. But yeah. because we've got so used to that's what normal is. Yeah, it is dominant and it always has been. As I mean, going back hundreds and hundreds of years in this part in the in in the global north. Um, I, that's how hegemony works, right? You don't even realize it. Hmm. So, um, I think that's one of the difficulties to address these issues here is that people take things incredibly understandably, because I do too, personally, right? Hmm. So, if you bring up the topic of whatever it might be, race, racism, uh, it, it's immediately, um, it's a trigger. It's a trigger alert, um, but it's not a personal thing. It's a cultural thing. It's a deeply, deeply conditioned thing where we're not aware of what we're swimming in, right? Mm. And yeah, how can we be aware of what we're swimming in unless we make ourselves aware of that, what we're swimming in? So that's that's like the that's the first thing really and I think that's why uh, affinity groups are really important 
and why, for example, just to come back to the topic of race and one could talk about heterosexism and all sorts of things, where these corpuses are really important to avoid that blame and shame thing where people are talking amongst themselves about these issues in a free way so they can feel free without the anxiety of... <sighs> in terms of the future, this is our last question, unless Alex has another question. Yeah. In terms of the future, what makes you most hopeful? What's something that makes you more hopeful than anything else? thing that gives me hope is are the little conversations that I have with people what I mentioned before uh, and even the conversation that, that we've just had as well where they're just like these moments of understanding these little aha moments little moments of connection I'm hopeful in that that incrementally things will change uh, and I hesitate to use the word better what does better even mean you know but I hope incrementally like through these little conversations and I, I'm also aware that the more one thing happens the more the opposite also happens so but and but no, but it is a big but I do feel very despairing of what's happening in the world. Greatly despairing, really. Like, that's grown. Like it's, yeah, it's grown, that feeling of despair. And I don't know if it's because I'm just seeing it more and it's always been there, but or if it really is more despairing. <laughs> I don't know. What do you think? So, I mean, you look at the history. If you look back in history and how much horrendous things have happened in history, I, I don't think things are getting worse. But I also just wonder: is everything is is human nature ever going to be good? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of people dominating other people and torture and refugees and you know it just seems to go on indefinitely but maybe one day who knows we we all come together and stop doing things but there was one thought that i had um i like what's been happening in the middle east in israel and gaza <clears throat> in these last days in the last weeks and at the same time as preparing for the soul singing thing and i've just felt uh, so overwhelmed by it all and on the other hand there's also it's the first time I've experienced where the, the and I don't know even know if this is true but where the media is showing the devastation and the hurt on, on both on the opposing sides mm. in equal measure I don't know if that's true but um, 
it, that gives me a little bit of hope. That's part of the mm. part of the stepping into a stepping out of the political divides and into we're all suffering. Yeah. And that's what we don't want. We don't want the suffering. You know, we're all on the same side. There, mm. the Palestinians and the Israelis. Everybody's dying, right? Let's stop the killing. So there, it feels like there's a, a, a an awakening there, that people are. So I use the term awakening in a different way because that, to me, is awakening mm. when you become aware of the of of those things that are happening in the world, and there is a a mobilization there. There is a there's an anger, there's a rage, there's a there's grief, there's how can this be happening? And that that creates a little uh that creates movement. I don't call it hope, but it's something that seems to Yeah. People are it feels to me just in my small circles and I have Israeli connections and I have a lot of um, Arab connections, not so much Palestinian, um, that people are exhausted with the whole politics mm. and so um, not finding the answers there in discussions and debates, not finding the answer in the politics at all. It's not. There's no satisfaction there in any way, so. Yeah. Thanks very much, Indira. Thanks very much, Alex. Thanks very much, Callum. <laughs> <laughs> this has been our Fintorn Barrow, episode number 14.